It's the right to self-determination. But there would be a lot of the Catalonians who would say, count me out, not in my name. From a legal point of view, they, you cannot do anything else. On October 1st of last year, Catalonia held a controversial referendum on seceding from Spain. Even before the vote took place, the Spanish Constitutional Court ruled the vote illegal, and the Spanish central government sent in the National Guard to prevent voters from reaching the ballot boxes. Despite these measures, the vote was held, resulting in violent clashes between the voters and the police. 90% of the participants in the contested referendum voted in favor of Catalan independence. The turnout, however, was only 43%. Eventually, on October 27, the Catalan Parliament unilaterally declared independence. In response, the Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy triggered Article 155 of the National Constitution, thereby allowing the central government to dissolve the Catalan Regional Parliament, remove Catalan leaders from office and call for new elections. In the weeks following the referendum, protesters, both pro- and anti-independence, took to the streets of Barcelona, reflecting the political tensions. Spain consists of 17 semi-autonomous regions, each with their own identity. Catalonia is one of the most prosperous regions, accounting for 16% of GDP, and it has its own language and culture. Spain is a decentralized, unified state, meaning that autonomous regions like Catalonia are governed by the national constitution, as well as laws enacted independently by each regional government. Catalonia was independent in the past, and was brought into Spain during the country's formation in the 16th century. Catalan nationalists have always pursued some degree of autonomy from Spain, but more recent history includes the oppression of the Catalan people under General Francisco Franco, a right-wing dictator who systematically oppressed all efforts towards Catalan nationalism and took away the autonomy of the region. Upon Franco's death in 1975, Spain transitioned into a democracy and the newly adopted constitution expanded autonomy in the regions, while also laying down that Spain is indivisible. Today, Catalonia enjoys more control over its regional finances than most other parts of Spain. But many Catalans feel they are paying high taxes to a central government they do not identify with, and some believe they will be wealthier and more successful as an independent state. Hello, and welcome to Namasphone a podcast series about current global legal issues produced by students at Tilburg University's Global Law Program. I am Gabrielle. And I am Natalia. In today's episode, we'll zoom in on the recent rise of Catalonia's independence movement. Our aim today is to assess Catalonia's chances of independence under current international law. Consider it a walkthrough of Catalonia's claim under international law and statehood, but also under European law and domestic Spanish law. What do these bodies of law have to say about the claim? Is there any legal support to be found for the Catalan case in them? These are the type of questions we will be exploring today. The episode will revolve around three talks. First, Professor Morag Goodwin, who holds the chair in Global Law and Development at Tilburg Law School, will guide us through the conditions for statehood in a lecture on Catalonia and other claims to independence. She will explore the Catalan right for independence through the lens of international law. Does international law in fact support a right to succession for the Catalan people? Then, 
Hans Lindahl, who holds the chair of legal philosophy at Tilburg University, will shed light on the discussion from a legal philosophical angle. He will talk us through the process of what it takes for a political collective of a polity to emerge. What does it mean to say we the people of Catalonia? Finally, we will speak to Guayasan Marrero Gonzalez, a researcher at Maastricht University, who is an expert in nationality law, private international law, public international law, and European law. He will shed light on the role the EU should take in relation to the situation in Catalonia. The existence or non-existence of a legal basis for the Catalan independence claim has become a widely discussed and hotly debated topic in the past months. But, before we go into the nitty-gritties of the debate, we should start, as per usual, at the very beginning, and ask ourselves, what are the main reasons for wanting independence from Spain? You will now hear Professor Mori Goodwin during her lecture Catalonia and Other Claims to Independence, which she gave last December at Tilburg University. So one of them is that they talked about this idea of being a separate nation, right? And that's partly the belonging question. You know, someone saying, I don't feel part of Spain. This idea of being a separate nation with a separate language, culture, etc. That might be one reason for wanting independence. And then that can, can become political, right? So that you say, well, if we are a separate nation, we should govern ourselves. In terms of the claim for Catalan, uh, Catalonian independence, 90% voted in the referendum for independence. Of course, the turnout was 42%, which, and again, there are lots of disputes about this because, of course, obviously the national level played a quite violent role in trying to stop people getting to the polls. Whether it really would have hit 50%, which is generally understood as being the bare minimum for something like this kind of decision. And the other part that might be interesting, so this goes to the money question, right? It tends to be, at least in Europe, the richer regions that talk about independence. But it's not just about money. That isn't normally sufficient to generate a feeling for independence. There's going to be some kind of suffering element normally tied into them. Now, that suffering can be historical. So and it needs to be like a memory, a shared collective memory, and one that's passed down over time. Right? That's how a nation begins, of course, how you get feelings of nationhood. For Catalonia, the shared memory seems to be partly historical. We were independent once, but also under Franco. So much more recent sense of shared suffering. And then in terms of the recent suffering, so Catalonia pays more proportionally in tax than any other region because they're the richest region. And that money is then distributed to a certain extent to the poorer regions of Spain. But there might be other reasons for feeling they've suffered. It's a lot to do with the post-2008 recession. There have been a lot of public cuts, and that has generated quite a lot of resentment in a place that pays more proportionally in tax, right? And then with the corruption scandals as well, has created a sense of feeling that there's contemporary suffering. And now, of course, the government's compounded that by arresting Catalonian leaders, putting them in jail, sending the national police in, in to disrupt the polls. So these might be some of the reasons that explain the rise of Catalonia's independence movement. But what matters is whether there is a legal basis to their claim to independence. It's the right to self-determination. So which means you get the right to self-determine, which means you get the right to create yourself, in this sense, to create yourself as a sovereign. So the right to self-determination is a principle under international law. It's a right. It's a Jus Kogan's norm, the highest norm of the international order. Of course, it comes with a few drawbacks. So the first thing to ask about a right, who's the rights holder? So who has this right? It's presumably not individuals. That would be a little bit crazy, right, if we could all individually, on our own, self-determine and claim statehood. It's probably not going to be a right of individuals. The second thing you need to know is the duty bearer. If someone has a right, something else must have a duty. Without duties, there can be no rights. They go together. What's the third thing you need to know about a right? You need to know what the content is. Because if you don't know what the content is, you can't apply it. So in terms of the rights holder, the rights holder, of course, is not individuals. It's peoples. 
Before we continue, it might be worthwhile to stop here for a moment and ask ourselves, what is a people? And who gets to say the famous, we the people? We asked these questions to Professor Hans Lindahl, who currently holds the Chair of Legal Philosophy at Tilburg Law School, and whose main research lies in the fields of legal and political philosophy. Lindahl has argued that declaring we the people is a putative construct, and that an exercise of constituent power is always pulled off. Only in hindsight can it be seen as the bearer of constituent power, if the ideals of the declaration actually catch on in real life. So in Catalan terms, only if Catalonia actually succeeds in succeeding from Spain, can the people of Catalonia be seen as the bearers of constituent power. We asked Professor Lindahl whether someone can have a right to define and claim unity. That is, can someone have a right to say, we the people? Now, I would say that in a certain sense, no one has a right to define and claim unity because a right would be a right that you have received from those who you, on whose behalf you would speak. You would have to be authorized by the people to be able to speak on behalf of the people. But in a certain sense, it is your very act of saying we the people that contributes to creating the people. So in a certain sense, any claim to having a right to define and, 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 uh, and uh, establish unity is premature and in that sense, illegitimate. And for this reason, any claim to speaking to unity can be challenged not merely on moral grounds, but I would say political grounds, indeed retrospectively. And so you see this happening, for, for example, quite clearly now in the situation of Catalonia. As you may well know, um, the Catalonian society, if I can use that expression, is quite split in terms of whether they want to be independent or not. And so you have a group, the secessionist group, which is perhaps, as I understand it, 2.7, perhaps 3 million people. Mm. But you have probably as many, perhaps a few more people who don't want to leave. And so if there were to be an independence of Catalonia, they would be speaking on behalf of the people as a whole, we the Catalonians. But there would be a lot of the Catalonians who would say, count me out, not in my name. Indeed, many Catalans have done just that. Various protests in favor of Spanish unity have brought hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets of Barcelona. In Spain, they are called the silent majority, who oppose independence from Spain, but may have initially been less vocal than the separatists. While an overwhelming majority of voters voted for independence in the referendum, only 43% of eligible voters participated in the referendum. It is not at all unlikely that those who did not go to the ballot boxes did so because they believed the referendum would be declared illegitimate. Why vote in a referendum you do not consider to be a fully-fledged referendum in the first place? In any event, we should take caution in generalizing the referendum outcome to all Catalans. Imagine that even all of the people who were, uh, lived in Catalonia were in agreement with independence. You would have to give a content to what it is that you, how you want to be independent. For example, that you want to defend the Catalan language, that you want to be a much more social, democratic, um, uh, collective than has been the case for Spain, which has been governed by a relatively um, conservative party, you would have to give a content to what it is that we are going to do together. So it could be the case that even if everyone says, let's go for Catalonia, but you wouldn't agree to what it is that joins us together as Catalonians and that we'd be prepared to have a constitution with. 
Before we go back to assessing whether Catalonia has any chance on their international law of becoming independent, we asked Lindell one more thing. We asked him to comment on precisely that, the international law criteria for an entity to qualify as an actual state. Now, this is, this is of course fascinating, because here we reach both, we reach here the limits of international law. It, um, of course, international law is extraordinarily protective of states. And so if you look at the criteria of the Montevideo criteria, these are criteria which are weighted in favor of the status quo in the sense of the states. You have, it, it, they are very harsh demands that are made for a group to be able to justify mm. self-determination in the way it takes it outside of the state. Mm. And so uh, you would have to have genocide, you would have to have a, a number of, you know, horrific forms of behavior before that that group would be able to be say, we want out, and that it would be internationally legitimate to do so. Mm. So in a certain sense, international law and state law reinforce each other to the detriment, amongst others, of indigenous peoples mm. all over the world. Uh, I've heard that there are about as many as four or five hundred million indigenous peoples all over the world. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot of people who feel that basically they've been held, mm -hmm. dealt a very bad hand by international law. So in a certain sense, what is at stake in something like uh, the uh, Catalan independence is uh, the conditions under which public international law is at all prepared to look as, at subjects of that we together. Now that we have some legal philosophical background to the notion of what a people is, let's go back to the legal ins and outs. So back to Professor Goodwin. Well, self-determination is not necessarily about independence. It provides three options. It says in the Declaration on Principles of International Law, it is the establishment of a sovereign and independent state, the free association or integration with an independent state, or the emergence into any other political status freely determined by a people. So it means you get to choose. It's not self-determination equals independence. Self-determination equals the right to choose your political status. And you might choose independence, but you might not. Right? You might choose, and some, not very many, but certain entities have then chosen to stay connected as an overseas department. So the, the obligation is not to help you achieve self-determination, but the obligation is to promote the realization of the right and that you respect it so that you don't try and suppress it. So Spain has this obligation. In terms of Catalonia, what does everything here hinge upon? whether Catalonia qualifies in terms of a legal right. So I think everyone agrees that Catalonia is a nation. The real question comes whether there are people. If there are people, great, because they qualify for self-determination. But if they're not a people, then they don't. So far, it is looking quite good for the Catalan separatists. As long as they qualify as a people in the legal sense, they qualify for self-determination. But, however, there are some more things we need to know about the right to self-determination before we jump to any conclusions. The first thing, of course, is it's a principle that dates from 1919, created by the Americans, right? So Woodrow Wilson in the League of Nations. So self-determination, everybody agrees. So the idea of a Jus Kogan's norm, the central pillar of international law, holds, but only in the context of colonialism. So if you were colonized by another power, then you are a people and you have the right to self-determination. The second thing to note is 
the absolutely centrality of the respect for state sovereignty. It is the pillar of the international order. So it means that all states are equal. It's a horizontal flat system and they must respect each other's sovereignty. And the corollary or what flows from state sovereignty is non-interference in sovereign affairs. Related is the principle of uti possidatis, those who possess. So basically what it means is borders cannot be changed in international law except with the consent of all concerned. That could work for Catalonia, but this idea that even in the situation of colonialism, you can't change the unit, which is not a people unit, but a territorial unit. Territory trumps people, which is of course bizarre. And the second thing to think about is the relevance of the meaning of the principle in the post-colonial era. Certain people in Catalonia and many other parts of the world may not feel that they're living in the post-colonial era, and they've got very good reason for not thinking so. But for international law's sake, we are in the post-colonial era. So colonialism has ended for international lawyers, and that means that the principle of self-determination, so what um, Mervis stated as external self-determination, which is another way of saying the right to choose independence, has ended. So now we're looking at what self-determination might mean, because the right continues. What does it mean in the post-colonial era? Does it still mean the right to independence, to freely choose? And it all depends a bit on how we determine what a people is. Citizenship, that's the legal word, is citizenship. The people of Spain have the right to self-determination as Spanish citizens. But the people of Catalonia do not, because there might be a nation and all kinds of things, but they are not a people under international law. This is the part about territory trumping people, as in the proper use of the word people, the everyday use of the word people. The territory is Spain, and that's the unit for the exercise of self-determination in the post-colonial era. So that's external self-determination, independence. And the idea of internal self-determination, it's about things like autonomy. So if you really are a separate nation within this broader unit, you might be able to negotiate autonomy but it doesn't give you the right to independence. It wouldn't be law, of course, without an exception. In this case, it is the safeguard clause. The clause was contained in the Declaration of the Principles of Friendly Relations Between Nations, number 2625, of the General Assembly, which has become customary international law. It dates from 1970 and was adopted in the context of apartheid. And this is what the safeguard clause says. Nothing about this right, which is self-determination, shall be construed as authorizing or encouraging any action which would dismember or impair, totally or in part, the territorial integrity or political unity of sovereign and independent states. So self-determination only internally. You cannot use this right to disembody, dismember, impair, totally or in part, a sovereign state, as long as they are conducting themselves in compliance with the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples, and thus possessed of a government representing the whole people belonging to the territory without distinction as to race, creed, or color. So as long as the government represents the whole people belonging to the territory, without distinction as to race, creed, or color, and if they respect the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples. And what it's safeguarding against is oppression. But if you have an institutionalized system of racism or religious discrimination or some other kind of institutionalized system, that would qualify. If it was done by law, violence counts. If you're ethnically cleansing by military force, but the threshold set pretty high. So the violence has to be widespread. It has to be systematic and it needs to take place over time. And it's always a question about what does it mean to be widespread, how systematic and how long? And these are all political questions to a certain extent. There's no legal definition of any of these terms. You kind of know it when you see it. So, but it's gonna to have to be something like two years 
of violence and oppression. If you're going to dismember a state, which is like the ultimate sin in international law, it's going to have to be for some, a very serious reason. And it's going to have to be recent, as in happening now. So the threshold's set very high for this. So now we can start putting this together for Catalonia. What's a problem for Catalonia? Unless you're going to make the claim that it's a colonial instance, there is no more external self-determination. They've had full autonomy. It's difficult, almost impossible, to claim that the safeguard clause has been breached. I mean, they may not feel that Catalonian language and its traditions are taken duly seriously in Madrid, but it doesn't breach the safeguard clause, anywhere near breaching the safeguard clause, right? The recent violence certainly should be taken seriously, but it's not systematic, it's not widespread, it's not, you know, doesn't have a long duration in time. Should that happen, well, things might change, but that seems highly unlikely within the European Union, right? So under international law, simple answer is no. Catalonia simply does not have the right to self-determination. It is thus questionable to what extent Catalonia has a right to self-determination under international law. And clearly, it does not seem to have such a right under national law. The Spanish constitution is very clear about this, for obvious reasons. But now, in the light of the recent Brexit controversy, the question presents itself. What is the EU's role in all of this? To get some answers, we conducted a Skype interview with Guayasen Marrero González, a researcher at Maastricht University. His research focuses on what happens to nationality law and EU citizenship status when a devolved part of an EU member state becomes independent. His answer with respect to the EU's role is clear. Their hands are simply tied. From a legal point of view, I would say that the role of the EU can be explained kind of easy. It's true that a lot of criticism has arisen from media. For instance, The Guardian stated a couple of weeks ago that as the Catalonian crisis escalates, the EU is nowhere to be seen, criticizing that certain passivity or certain non-action from the EU. But we have to take into account first that EU, the EU is an international organization. Its members are states. And the, the Treaty of the European Union established that the EU shall respect member states' national identities and also it shall respect their essential state functions, including the territorial integrity of the state, maintaining the law and the order and the safeguard of national security. Those are competencies that belong exclusively to the state. So I think that from a legal point of view, the EU cannot do anything else. So the relations between the EU and Spain are relations between the EU and the Spanish state in the Catalan uh, region. Marrero also raised concerns about how the media has failed to provide the whole picture of what independence would mean for Catalonia. It would highly likely mean a future outside of the EU. There's something that uh, I cannot deny, and it's the, the, the power of the media in Catalonia. I mean, they have developed a whole lobby uh, around the, the, the Catalan independence, and they have done that really, really well. There is a risk on this kind of uh, situation, and I think we all hear about this, uh, like something that is not, it's not 100% real. Sometimes I, I felt, generally speaking, not only in the Catalan case, but generally speaking, and we also witness these kind of situations, uh, for instance, with the Brexit uh, referendum, that sometimes not all the media give the right information. In these kind of situations in which uh, people are called to, to vote in a referendum, uh, we need to provide real information. A new state will be outside of the EU. Maybe that's something that is not being explained clearly to, to the population. If there is some political 
willingness to, to make this automatic fast-track uh, accession to the EU, I think that could be possible. But still, from the legal point of view, we have an accession procedure. A new state cannot bypass that procedure, uh, at least from the legal point of view. So what would be the likely result of such negotiations? Again, Professor Mora Goodwin shed some light on this. Where EU law begins to matter is in terms of how they decide who becomes a member. It's like joining any club, really. All the members usually have like a, it's called blackballing. The basically a, set, a bag comes past and you have a ball, a white ball and a black ball. And you put, it's anonymous, you sort of put a ball into the bag. And if there's any single black ball, then you are not admitted. The EU is the same. It is done behind closed doors. And it's not just Spain who would veto. Other states that have concerns about possible breakaway, like Germany, doesn't want to give sort of support to this idea that you can break away. This matters economically. It doesn't matter in terms of international law for your claim to sovereignty. But by God, it matters economically, right? It will matter incredibly for Catalonia, which does so well precisely out of connecting to other regions, the regional policy within the European Union and the regional funding. So it would be difficult to be outside the European Union and trading then on WTO terms. Again, you have to apply for membership of the WTO. Right in there, Spain again. Taken everything together, it appears at the moment problematic to make a strong case for Catalan succession under the current rules of national, international and European law. But that is the law, and law is only a part of the whole picture. There's also international relations, which in some cases have played a larger role than international law in questions of statehood. Some states have gained independence without necessarily having the right to. Independence is not only a legal question, but also an act of political self-creation. You call yourself into being by claiming to represent we as a distinct group, as a whole, as we the people of, and thereby you rupture the existing legal order. Why would you then ask that very legal order you are trying to rupture for permission to rupture it? That wouldn't really make sense. One of the things that matter in making independence real is whether other states recognize you as independent. An illustrative example is Kosovo, which declared independence from Serbia in 2008. While Kosovo may not have had the right to independence under international law, by now 113 out of 193 UN member states recognize it as an independent state. So what would make Catalan independence real? Professor Goodwin tells us more. So then what next? Right, That's a legal situation. Legally, Catalonia is screwed. They don't have any legal rights to independence. But you know, States become independent all the time. So law only takes you so far. And the answer is, in a way, this is politics. So how could Catalonia achieve independence anyway? The easiest way is if Spain says, you know what, fine, have it your own way, go. And this is your share of the national debt. So in terms of what it means to make independence real, and you cannot be sovereign if you do not also have effective control, which is a nice word for saying you have the uh, monopoly on violence. Right? You must assert the monopoly on violence within your territory even and especially over your own people. The other aspect <coughs> is your independence in relation to other states. You have to be able to enter into relations with other states in order to be a state, in order to be sovereign. In order to enter into relations with other states, they need to, yeah, they have to recognize you, yeah. And then what question arises? How many? And then not just how many, not just quantity, but also quality. So the quantity question is almost impossible to answer. There's no cut and dry point about, well, you've hit 100, that's it. 
Here's your certificate, you're now sovereign. So quantity matters, but quality matters more. So partly then it's going to be the permanent five of the Security Council. If you get all five, well, you've pretty much got it. But that's not formal international law, it's just politics. Which other state? Neighboring states, right? Because you touch upon their borders. And if they don't recognize you, it's gonna be that much harder. So in terms of Catalonia, that would be France. And Spain, obviously, but assuming Spain hasn't given it, France. So France would have a, it was also a permanent member of the Security Council. They get a doubly large say in whether Catalonia gets to be a state. Also, in, at least in the case of Catalonia, which other states matter? EU states, right? Because again, the EU is, a, is completely sui generis. There's nothing like it on the planet and never has been in history, right? For how closely integrated the states are. And so the other states who are closely integrated would get to have some kind of say. And at least their recognition would be more important than Australia's or New Zealand's. We must add here, however, that no state has shown any sign of willingness to recognize Catalonia as an independent state. They may have criticized the police violence or regretted the internal turmoil, but all continue to defend the territorial integrity of Spain. Only regional governments, such as the Flemish region, Corsica and Sardinia, expressed their support for Catalan independence. In the beginning of this episode, we mentioned that the Spanish central government had triggered Article 155 of the Spanish Constitution, putting Catalonia under direct control of the central government and allowing Madrid to call for new regional elections in Catalonia. And that is precisely what they did, in an attempt to put an end to the secessionist push for independence. And on the 21st of December, elections were held in Catalonia, under direct rule from the Spanish government. The three separatist parties retained their control of parliament, winning a total of 70 out of 135 seats. But the centre-right anti-independence party Ciudadanos was the single biggest winner, with 36 seats and a 25.4% vote share. Unsurprisingly, Mariano Rajoy's party, Partido Popular, was the biggest loser. Catalan president Carles Puigdemont was the most voted presidential candidate among the separatist parties. But then, former Catalan president Puigdemont fled to Belgium in October as he faced arrest on possible charges of rebellion, sedition and misuse of public funds. Until recently, it remained uncertain whether he would set foot in Spain without being arrested. But this last month, on the 23rd of March, a Spanish Supreme Court judge reactivated an international arrest warrant for Puigdemont as he was visiting Finland. Two days later, he was detained in Germany while he was trying to cross the border into Denmark. In Spain, Puigdemont could face up to 25 years in prison. So what is next for Catalonia? It is unlikely that the region will become independent, at least in 2018. But the newly elected separatist parties have not given up their independence goals. We would like to thank Professor Hans Lindahl, Professor Mora Goodwin and Mr. Guayasen Mariru Gonzalez for their collaboration. We would also like to thank the Global Law Programme at Tilburg Law School for supporting Nomosphone. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can follow us on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our website at namasphone.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time.